So I uh, I have an important question for you. Oh, what's that? Um, well, it's the super spiritual questions that we usually ask our guests, but I thought it would be fun to flip the script once again on you. I really want to know what what is something you're really good at that no one knows about? Something you haven't like shared yet on the podcast. Mm. What's a little snippet about you? That I can make a taco out of almost anything. Really? A yeah. taco, okay. And it could be corn tortillas, could be flour, except for I've been trying to stay off gluten. So I've okay. got all these other like gluten substitute tortillas that, okay. you know, somebody <laughs> like you is probably not going to really like. But you know, <laughs> no. when, when you can't eat gluten and all you can find is almond flour tortillas oh, or, you okay. know, grain-free tortillas. You make the best uh, of it. I, yes, I've learned to make the best of all those things. Okay. And because I grew up in Santa Ana, California, you know, with half my high school or more was Hispanic, you know, okay. I, I grew up around a lot of tortillas and yeah. I've learned I've learned now to you can put almost anything in a tortilla and make it taste good. What what's maybe the craziest taco you've ever put together? It's not crazy, but I like breakfast tacos a lot. So like okay. eggs, meat, cheese, you know, maybe some veggies. And then recently when I'm trying to be not only not eat gluten, but eat a lot of protein, like I just did this last night. Okay. I I chopped up chicken meatballs from Trader Joe's and fried them in like garlic oil and then fried these almond flour tortillas in the garlic oil Put some uh, like garlic aioli on it or something. It was good. I don't know that that really counts as a taco, but if you figure out a way to put it in a tortilla, it works. All right. So, so what about you? What, uh, what's, what's something you're (laughs) great at that no one knows? So I wouldn't say I'm great at this, but I actually roller skated growing up. What? And yeah. Every weekend I was at the roller skating rink. I took all the classes. Nice. I graduated top of my class, super skater. And <laughs> uh, this year, my sort of New Year's resolution was to get back into skating. So uh. past couple months, I've been roller skating. I'm not the greatest at it. Maybe I was when I was like 10, but yeah. I'm definitely not anymore. But I am working on that. I'm pretty proud nice. of, of roller skating. And it's fun for me. It's different roller skating as an adult as it was yeah. when I was a kid. Because I can't afford an accident the way I probably wouldn't have cared before when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, but now right, I yeah. have like the wrist guards, the elbow pads, sure. the knee pads, the helmet. I have it so all. So you look like you're doing roller derby. I look crazy, yeah. But I'm really scared of falling now. So that is maybe not quite the same as the sort of fearless thing that I had when yeah. I was a kid, but I, I do enjoy roller skating. Yeah. So does this mean we need to start starting our podcast with all skate, all yeah. skate? Line me up. <laughs> yep. I enjoy roller skating, but that's great. maybe I'll, maybe I'll get great by the end of summer. That's kind of my goal. Okay. Yes. So today's conversation I am very excited about. I know you are too. Todd, we get to speak today to Dr. Wesley Hill, Mm -hmm. who is the Associate Professor of New Testament at Western Theological Seminary. So he's in Holland, Michigan right now. And we just get to hear his personal story, his uh, testimony as a gay Christian who is uh, celibate and is uh, just pursuing a life of discipleship toward Jesus and helping those of us who are in ministry to uh, do that work as well within our churches. So he's just an awesome resource with a a great testimony. And we just talk a lot about the intersection of his own personal life and his yeah. theological expertise. And we talk a little bit about his book, Washed and Waiting. And it's just and a really encouraging... His book on spiritual friendship. Yep, on spiritual friendship. So this is just a really awesome conversation that I'm, I'm excited to share. Yeah, and I think it was great to hear how his work... Uh, writing those books came out of his own experience. Remember right, he, uh, right. that he was, he was really trying to dig into these things for himself and it, mm-hmm. it makes both him as a person and his teaching and his writing, I think really winsome because he's yes. a very capable scholar, mm-hmm. but he's talking about things that he has been living himself. So I would just say that I guess podcast hosts are supposed to say stuff like this, but I really mean it. He's one of my very favorite people. Yeah. There's something about his intellectual capacity, his mm-hmm. winsomeness, his humility, his his sort of fearlessness to tell yep. his story. 
He's a powerful and, man of God. Yep. Yeah. And, but to root it always, like you said, anchored in our scriptures and in, yep. in the history of the church, it, it's very inspiring to me. It is. It is. He's a delight and his love for the Lord is so evident in yeah. all his work and everything that he does. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Wes Hill. Hi, I'm Mickey Lowe. Hi, I'm Bishop Todd. And welcome, welcome to, to the C4SO, C4SO podcast. podcast. So Wesley, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We're so excited to have you. Well, it's my honor and joy. Thank you. Yes. So we like to start off by just asking a couple of fun questions. So we wanted to ask you, what is something that you are really good at? that no one knows about, maybe like a secret or hidden talent, something that you're okay with it being made public today? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so when I was a kid, my favorite hobby was drawing. And I remember when people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said, I want to be a Disney animator. Wow. Um, okay. And I, I oh. developed some, I, I think, fairly good skills as, a, yeah. as an artist. I, I, I made my own comic strips and things like this. And, but I don't, I don't do anything with it professionally or, okay. or publicly. So it's just kind of you know, something I enjoy doing. Actually, I enjoy doing it with my God kids now, you know, drawing, Aww. drawing picture books for them. And yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's probably my hidden talent. Nice. That's awesome. I, cer I certainly didn't know that. Yeah, that is really cool. <laughs> so on the flip side, Wes, what is something that you're maybe really bad at that you wish you were good at? Well, I am probably the most unathletic person you'd ever want to meet. And I, <laughs> I, I, am too. I wish, I wish that I weren't. I, I, I <laughs> sports look great <laughs> as far as, as, far as yeah. the enjoyment factor goes and the, uh, the teamwork and the friendship. So, um, yeah, I've, I've tried over the years. I've tried different <laughs> sports, tried to, tried to, uh, break in, but I, I, yeah. I heard the historian Car Carlos Erie uh, describe himself one time as a sports atheist. And oh, I, yeah. I, think, I think that's what I am. I just don't yeah. have the knack for, for, uh, for, yeah. for being sporty. Oh, that's great. I wish well, I was sporty too. Yeah. Are you sporty, Bishop Todd? Oh like, yeah. I was the opposite of Wes. I grew up playing everything, uh, baseball, basketball, football. I don't follow sports as much now just because it takes too long. My yeah. my following of sports is like 15 minutes a day if I'm lucky on ESPN's app. Yeah. You know, that's sure. about it. Yeah. I enjoy I enjoy watching the big events like the Olympics oh, sure. and the World yeah. Cup. Yeah. You know, th those are yeah. those are really fun. Of uh, course. Sure. Well, I, those yeah, are like cultural moments. Exactly. exactly. It's important. Yeah, I I'm not a sports person either. I do pay attention whenever Tampa is mm. winning in mm -hmm. any area. Yeah. So like yeah. the Rays, the Bucks, the Lightning, like yeah. as I'm just team Tampa all the way. So That's great. I'll watch the very last championship just to be a witness if and when. That's great. Win. So awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that, Wes. So, we, uh, hey, Mickey, I'm going to know I've arrived. I'm, uh -huh. I'm somebody when I have a signed Wesley Hill cartoon. <laughs> oh so, yes! So someday, Wes, for my birthday or Christmas yeah, or something. I Christmas. love that. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> then I'll know yeah. I'm with somebody. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great gift idea. So let's get into a little bit more about yourself, Wesley. Let's talk about your upbringing, your experience growing up in the church, maybe some of your own personal story and testimony, that which a lot of is the background for your work in human sexuality today. So we'd just love to hear a little bit more about you and what led you to the work that you do now. Yeah, thank you. So I was raised in a very uh, loving, devout Christian family. Uh, my parents were Southern Baptists, and they had... Mm -hmm. They had kind of come to an awakening of their faith, even though they'd both grown up in church. But right before I was born, they kind of had a reawakening. And so I was I was born into that kind of uh, household. I was the firstborn. I'm the oldest of three. Mm. And uh, I, I, I don't know if either of you will know, um, there's a series of, of children's books called the Arch Books. And each one is an individual Bible story. So they're very oh, short. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they're, they're beautifully illustrated. They're published by Concordia press, which is a Lutheran uh, yeah. press. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we just had stacks and stacks of these in our living room. And I, I just absorbed, you know, so much of the Bible through those books. Mm. And, um, 
you know, back to drawing, I started drawing uh, Daniel in the lion's den, David and Goliath, mm, you know, all cool. these, all these scenes from the Bible. So that was kind of my childhood. I was, I was very interested in the Bible. I was, I, I had a kind of evangelical conversion experience with my mom when I was probably five or six. I, I said, mm. I want to ask Jesus to be the Lord of my life and mm. uh, ask him to come into my heart. So my, my mom prayed with me uh, that way. You know, I, I think unlike a lot of folks, I, I really, I mean, I can look back at my church experience and say there were definitely things that I wish were different. It was, it, it tended to be on the legalistic side. I think my sister struggled in some ways more than I did with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've not turned away from the church. I, I, I yeah. think the church is, is broken and flawed and sinful, but I also think that it's where God has promised to, to meet us. And, and so that, that conviction has never really gone away for me. You know, the same time that my friends were going through puberty and beginning to talk about girls that they found attractive, I I realized that was not happening with me. That was not my experience. And I should say, maybe I was raised in a in a pretty small conservative town in Arkansas, so I didn't even really know much about the concept of homosexuality. Mm, Uh, There was nobody in my life that was openly gay that I knew of. And so as I was trying to make sense of my experience, that that was not the framework that I initially kind of right. glommed onto because it just wasn't available to me. So I, I, I remember thinking maybe this is just a phase, you know, maybe this is something that I'll outgrow. Maybe everybody's going through this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think by the time I was uh, finishing high school, um, I, I realized, you know, no, my, my, the orientation of my attractions is all for the same sex. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, if we think about sexuality as a spectrum where, you know, on one end would be the, heterosexual experience right. and, and um, the other end would be same-sex attraction. I was, I was completely same-sex attracted and I had not told anyone. Uh, I think somehow I had kind of absorbed the idea that this was a uniquely bad uh, thing for a Christian to be experiencing. And I felt ashamed. I felt mm-hmm. um, uh, fearful. You know, what if people found yeah. out? Right. Um, and so I, I went away to college. I went to Wheaton college near Chicago and it was while I was there that I, I felt the Holy Spirit really putting his finger on my heart and saying, you know, if you don't if you don't find a way to talk with at least one other person mm-hmm. about this, you know, you're 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 kind of uh, you're a disaster waiting to happen. You know, the, there's right. going to be a lot of grief and, and pain. And and um, so I, I, I took a risk. I, I shared with one of my professors who was a very uh, he was someone who had suffered a lot. He was partially paralyzed and he just had a deep compassion for human weakness and frailty. Mm-hmm. So I confided in him and that started me on a journey of beginning to open up this part of my experience to God and say, what do you want from me? What do you want to do with me? Mm-hmm. And uh, my my writing kind of grew out of that. I, I, I published my first book in 2010 uh, called Washed and Waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it was sort of my testimony of, of acknowledging that I'm gay, also uh, saying, I, I believe that God is asking me to be celibate because I believe that God created marriage to be uh, the union of man and woman, the union of male and female, um, yeah. and that sexual intimacy belongs within that. And so uh, all, all the books that I was familiar with at the time that were Christian about this were either, on the one hand, uh, why you should not be uh, theologically conservative, you know, why you should be gay affirming, or on the other hand, how you can become ex-gay, um, how you can... Uh, kind of find, find yourself delivered from these attractions. And what I was desperate to find was somebody who was saying neither of those things. Someone saying, you know, I haven't been yeah. healed, but here's what it looks like to be uh, to be walking with Jesus in the midst of it. You know, I was really inspired by kind of on a, on a lark, I discovered that Henry Nouwen, the famous Catholic priest mm-hmm. who, who died in 1996, he was gay. And he, he was not public about that during his lifetime. And I remember thinking, wow, like here's a guy who lived his entire life as a celibate Catholic priest and was also gay and struggled with loneliness like I do. Like it, it, it kind of gave me a new paradigm for how mm. to think about how to think yeah. about discipleship in, in this way. So, yeah, that's a bit of my story. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thanks, Wes. If we think about the mixture of the church that you were talking about, all of her beauty and uh, all of her foibles as well. Mm. And if you overlay that with the great command of that somehow at the heart of all this is for us to be able to love each other mm. in our various brokennesses, um, 
give us a couple of anecdotes maybe about times in, in your life now, if you, you know, thinking back now, maybe 25, 20, 25 years where you feel like you've really been understood and loved well by the church. And I ask that because the, a big part of our listeners are people who work in and for the church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I want to help them get an imagination from your point of view about yeah. spaces and times or, you know, places where you felt understood and heard and loved. Yeah. 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 You know, um, I remember in my early twenties, I went to be an intern at a church and several of the pastors were, I don't know that they were open with the whole congregation, but they were certainly open with us interns about significant unresolved struggles in their lives. Uh, Mm. Things like, you know, one of them had a family member who was struggling with an eating disorder and it was, it was just bringing enormous grief into their family system. And I, that, that felt new to me. I I wasn't used to Christians being so honest and Mm. open about areas where they couldn't just claim victory. You know, right. I was used to the testimony. Right. I used to struggle with this. Right. And now I've, and now now I've delivered. But yeah, yeah but, but they were talking about kind of ongoing issues, you know, ongoing battles with depression. And I know I know those of us who work in churches, we have to be careful about not oversharing, you know, and not. Right. not but, but I do think what made me feel as if I could, I could risk, you know, talking about my sexuality was the fact that they were open about other areas of life. Uh. Right. That were, that were not kind of neatly resolved. And Mm. boy, it was, it was a powerful thing for me to see that. And it it was, it was, it was pastors, it was pastor spouses, you know, and and maybe part of it was they did want us who were interns to know, you know, if you, if you become a minister, if you become a church worker, that doesn't automatically mean you're completely sanctified or or problem free, you know, not not at all. I mean, look at the apostle Paul, right? Um, He's burdened with anxiety and, and, uh, you know, pain and all kinds of things. So, so I would, I would, I would say that, I mean, take, take the risk of talking about places in your Christian experience where you don't have the solution yet. You, you don't have the happy ending yet. You don't have the, 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 the bow tie at the end yeah. that, that neatly ties it all together. I've also said before, it, it's, it's amazing what even little tiny comments can, can do, can, can create safety. So yeah. I, I remember again, I was probably in my twenties and I remember hearing a preacher, he was preaching from Romans uh, about the gospel uh, where Paul says, um, you know, it's for everybody. It's for, for Jew and Greek, barbarian, Scythian, you know, slave and free. And he's sort of riffing on this in his sermon. And he says, and it's for black and white, gay and straight. And he kind of went on from there. That was the only thing he said in that sermon about sexuality. But man, it spoke volumes to me Mm. because it it said to me, you know, he's aware that I'm, he's aware that people like me are sitting in the pews listening to this. He's aware that not everyone is straight. Not everyone is, uh, you know, going to be married and have children. And, you know, it's a tiny little thing, but it it spoke volumes to me. So it sounds like it made you feel included, embraced, something exactly. like that, like a part exactly. of the community. And, and, and that this, this wasn't something that was foreign to Christians. You know, Christians can yeah. experience this kind of right. sexual brokenness or temptation, right. whatever you want to call it. Right. So I could guess at this, Wes, but I want to ask you the sort of the negative correlation. I, I mean, I could guess based on your positive construal that maybe a really hard thing is a kind of a toxic judgmentalism that's never married to to talking about reality. Yeah. But give us an anecdote or two, if you can, again, for the sake of Christian leaders listening to this, where you felt excluded or unheard or unseen, like what are the practices in the church that do that to people? If you could put it in those terms. Yeah. You know, I I remember a painful moment with a couple, a pastor couple that I really loved and trusted and I shared with them, you know, I said, I don't remember how I said it. I probably said something like, you know, I'm gay. I want to follow Jesus. I want to commit to intentional singleness. Mm-hmm. And I remember the wife just immediately without asking further questions, she said, I know God has a wife for you out there. Mm-hmm. And it just, mm-hmm. it was one of those moments where she wasn't trying to be mean. She wasn't trying right. to be rude, but it just mm-hmm. felt like she's giving me a solution I mean, I think her motives were she didn't want me to be lonely. She didn't want me to be, you know, isolated. But to me, it just felt like, wow, my story is incredibly 
simplified right now. Like mm-hmm. you've, you've, right. you've kind of put a reduced. Uh, yeah, it feels it feels quite reduced. And so, like, can you remember how you felt at that moment? Like, did you feel unseen? Uh, did you feel like handled? Maybe. Uh, yeah, in those are good overly words. simplified way or something. Those are good words. Yeah. I mean, I, okay. I think I felt, wow, I either I haven't managed to convey or you haven't managed to hear what mm-hmm. I'm telling you, which mm-hmm. is that I don't have any sexual attraction to women. And here you yeah. are saying, well, the solution is to have a wife. Like it just, yeah. it, 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 it didn't feel commensurate with what I had shared. You know, it, yeah. It, yeah. It, it felt like uh, this is what she feels like she's supposed to say in this moment. Unseen, I think is how I felt. Okay. Kind of un- misunderstood, you know, yeah. not not listened to. Yeah, a lot of your listeners will know uh, the landscape has really shifted in the last few years. There was a there was a big ministry called Exodus International right. that that closed. I believe it closed. I need to go back and look, but I think it was around 2014 or 15. There's been a little bit of a shakeup in the in the wake of that closing, and there's right. been different organizations that have kind of come in and I've been involved with one of them. That's not perfect. Uh, but it's, it's, it's been a blessing to me and I hope I've been a blessing to that called revoice before we even had the first event in 2018, there was already a lot of criticism, mainly from my fellow evangelicals. I I mean, I consider myself a a pretty conservative evangelical and I, I was taken aback by it. Honestly, Mm. I was, uh, you know, we hadn't even had the conference yet. Um, Mm. and I, I felt, wow, like it's, is the suspicion of people like me so intense oh, right. that, you know, oh, you man. can't even wait to hear what we're going to say, man. I'm so sorry. We've right. already got to be denounced. That's heartbreaking you know that? Wes. I'm well, so sorry. I don't, I don't mean to, you know, I know you don't, whatever, but, but, yeah. <laughs> but it was just, it was one of those moments where I felt like, wow, these are people I have considered my family. Maybe, maybe they're not interested in being my family, you know, in, yeah. in some ways it was, yeah. it was, it was disillusioning for sure. Um, yeah. One of the things that was uh, discouraging about it was the sense that the main thing that gay Christian people need to be worried about is is sexual sin and compromise. You know, that was the suspicion that we were yeah. we were kind of on a slippery slope toward mm-hmm. progressivism or whatever. And and there was precious little concern about how can we how can we help these folks not to be isolated, not to be lonely, right. not to be right. um, kind of othered in a yeah. way that is, that is bad. That That's, that's what was hurtful about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So Wes, you talked about this um, just a few minutes ago um, and mentioned your book, uh, Washed and Waiting. And we wanted to kind of take you back several years in your story to when you wrote this book. Um, and Bishop Todd and I just love to ask authors what uh, their hope is in writing their books, what you were hoping to achieve. And then we just love a story, maybe an iconic story of how this book has helped someone and mm. they got a chance to talk to you about it. And Well, so I I've, I think I've written all of my books uh, based on the idea that I wanted to find a book like this to read. And when I couldn't <laughs> find one, I thought I'm going right. to have to try to write it. Yeah. So I was, I was really wanting to read a testimony and kind of some theological reflection on, so what if you're gay and what if you haven't been healed of that orientation? And what if you're also committed to the traditional biblical view of sexuality? Mm-hmm. What then, you know, what does life look like? And and I just couldn't find a book like that, that there, there, there are some that I've discovered since then, but they're kind of in out of the way places. Um, so I wrote very much kind of out of that, wanting to try to give some narrative shape to, to that that kind of posture and also to do some reflecting on it theologically. So the title, uh, washed and waiting, those are both words that Paul uses in first Corinthians six. He talks about how there were some of the Corinthians who had been involved in same sex relationships. And he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified Mm -hmm. in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So that's where that idea of washed came from. That's my identity. I'm, I'm washed yeah. in, in the flood of the spirits, you know, life-giving uh, power. And yeah. my identity is not that I'm rejected by God or forsaken by God, but I'm loved. I'm, I'm accepted. Mm-hmm. And then the waiting comes from Romans 8, where Paul describes the Christian life in, in terms of a, like a woman in labor. She, she's, yeah. she's in pain longing for the moment when the baby is born, you know, longing mm-hmm. for the moment when creation is is renewed. And I stumbled across a great quote from Richard Hayes, where he says, anybody who doesn't recognize that kind of groaning posture mm. in discipleship doesn't really understand the Christian life. Because, yeah. you know, if, if that's where you find yourself, I mean, 
you're in good company because that's that's yeah. the normal Christian experience. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're waiting for the resurrection of the body. We're we're not yeah. fully healed yet. You know, and and mm. we believe we will be, but but not yet. So yeah, I really hoped the book would find its way to people like me and and make them feel less alone. Um, I've gotten so many letters since that book came out. I mean, I still get letters mm-hmm. from people saying. I, I think the most gratifying ones are saying, "How did you crack into my?" desk and read my diary, you know, like, like the, the, yeah. there's, that, there's that kind of yeah. identification. Um, uh, one funny iconic story. I, I, I met a guy in St. Louis a few years ago, a wonderful person, um, uh, devout Christian guy in his, in his twenties who is gay and, and celibate. And he had read the book and he pulled up his sleeve and he showed me a tattoo that he had gotten on his wrist that said washed. Uh, and I, uh, and I, 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 he nice. said, you know, this, nice. this is who I am. And, and I thought, well, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You probably can't find very many Christian authors who readers have tattooed something yeah. on. That's them. really cool. I, it's a little scary, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm from Ephraim Quokais by name. Saludos. My name is Jonathan Kinberg. And we want to together invite you to our second annual diaspora network conference. Our theme this year is mutuality and mission. What does it look like for immigrants and the broader North American church to really partner together? The conference will be on July 28th and 29th in Austin, Texas, and it's for immigrants and leaders from C4ASO who want to partner with the nations here. See you soon. You know, and we also want to ask to you, and I'm sure this happened, but what sort of criticism were you met with, uh, if any, when you published this book? Was there any sort of pushback that you received? Um, And then kind of how how did that affect you and how did that shape your thinking? Or Yeah. So I think on the more progressive side, uh, the worry is not that people, that some people like me choose to be celibate. The worry is that celibacy is a requirement. You know, if you uh, want to, if you want to follow Jesus, it's like as a yeah. mandate. Mm-hmm. So that was one criticism that I've gotten. You know, you can't, you can't say that every gay person is called to abstain from sex. Some, but, but not all. Uh, and then on the more conservative side, I think the main criticism was, Wes, you're, you're hoping for too little. You need to be uh, more ambitious in your, sorry. Uh, friends, there's my, Carl my, Bark. My dog is, <laughs> is barking. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> You'll get a kick out of this. I was speaking at a church in Singapore one time, and the guy who introduced me said, uh, you know, Wes's dog is named Carl Bark, and we're, e- <laughs> we're eagerly awaiting the publication of his church, Dogmatics. <laughs> oh, that's, which, that's which so I, great. Which I thought was awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. All good. He has um, something to say. Yeah, exactly. So I think on the more conservative side, the, the, the critique was you're not open enough to healing. You're not open enough to God doing something dramatic and, mm. and giving you heterosexual desire so yeah. that you can get married. And I think, I think there were some worries about the category of celibacy. Isn't that a Roman Catholic thing? You know, why are uh, we talking about yeah. celibacy? Oh. Yeah. So those were, those were some of the kinds of criticisms that I got. And, you know, I think, I think I still, I mean, yeah, I, I still kind of take those seriously and try to uh, think about how I can, uh, you know, approach all this from the most Christian and helpful way that I can. Yeah. So Wes, let's dig a little deeper on the, the, your first response on the progressive side. Is it that you're like, would the really tough critique be something like you're actually harming people? You're, yeah. you're constraining them. You're yeah. maybe sort of psychologically, emotionally, spiritually bullying them or right. something, or, right. you know, right. these are too high of expectations. Like how would you humanize that a little bit? Like what's yeah. being said to you, you think from an experiential point of view? Yeah, that's mm. a great question. So I, I think, I think the criticism is that when you look at how the Christian tradition has talked about celibacy it's always said that it's something to be prayerfully discerned. You know, it's, it's, you don't have to be in a monastery. You don't have to be celibate. You may be married. There's nothing wrong with marriage. And so if you are celibate, that's, that's a free vocational choice that you're making. Right. Whereas what I'm saying is that if you find yourself same-sex attracted, there really is no choice that you have. You, you, you don't have the option of a same-sex sexually active Right. marriage or partnership. Yeah. You you have to be celibate. 
and I, I think I think people worry that that it, it 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 curtails the sense of a free voluntary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I'm 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 willingly submitting to this. You know. Yeah. Uh, um, so I think I think it's. I can't remember if you use the word coercion, uh, Bishop Todd, but something I think, like I think, that. Yeah. I think the worry would be that it's coercive, yeah. you know, that it's, that it's, uh, it squelches the the sense of personal discernment. Yeah. Um, so I know you've talked about this all over the place and written about it all over the place in various venues, but what's your, what's your answer to that? Not answer yeah. in like a snarky way, sure. but you're, sure. you're a very thoughtful, careful theologian as well, uh, as the person you've described. So Wes, how have you arrived at your position about singleness that feels to you loving and not bullying? A couple things to say there. Um, one would be, I don't actually think it's a mandate that all gay Christian people be celibate. I, I have friends who are in what they call mixed orientation marriages, mm-hmm. where they're married to a person of the opposite sex, but one of them is oriented primarily or, or, or mainly to the same sex and the other one is not. Right. So I, I do think that's a, I mean, I, I would be very cautious about recommending that, but I do mm-hmm. think that's a, that's an option. So it's yeah. not that you, you must be unmarried, you know, you must right. be, I think you shouldn't be married to someone of the same sex. Uh, I don't right. think that's biblical, but so that'd be one thing. Um, I also would say, I think that we experience a lot of asks from God in the Christian life that are not exactly where we don't have a, just a free choice in the matter. I think about a story of someone like B.B. Warfield, who was a theologian um, at Princeton Seminary. And uh, I think it was while he was on his honeymoon, his wife was struck by lightning and paralyzed. Well, suddenly he doesn't have a choice anymore about whether he's going to care for a disabled spouse. That That's right. just handed to him. That's that's the that's the deck that life dealt to him, you know? And, right. and so I, I'm a little suspicious of this idea that the only callings from God that we can, that we can view as legitimate are ones that we have a free decision in whether or not to accept. I'm not quite sure that's how the Christian life works. I think God sometimes gives us stuff that feels like I, I don't, I don't have any say in this God. You know, I, I would like to have some say in this, but I, you've just, you just put something on my plate that I would not have wanted. And I, I do think that's part of part of living a Christian life. And, uh, you know, regardless of whether right. we're gay or straight, I mean, that seems to be the way I read the New Testament. You know, Paul didn't want this thorn in the flesh, right. but right. God said, I'm not taking it away, you know? So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but um, that's kind of the way I think about it. So Wes, is there anything that you have learned in the past uh, several years, um, you know, in, in light of these conversations that we're having as a church and as God's people, would you consider writing or like adding a new chapter or having like a revised edition? I'm no author, but I've been around enough authors to know that sometimes it, you know, the thought kind of comes up where, oh man, I, maybe I'll be able to say this in the next book or, oh, maybe I should do in a revised edition or whatever in terms of like your your writing. Have you considered that? Have you thought about publishing some more work? Yeah. So, uh, so a few years later, I, I did publish another book called Spiritual Friendship, mm-hmm. basically, right. try, basically trying to ask the question, you know, if Washington Waiting was mainly about the sacrifice, you know, what I'm, what I'm saying no to yeah, and some of the challenges of that, what about the yes side? You know, what, what am I being called towards? What am I being called into? I still think that's a vitally important question for the church, you know, not, not to view people like me as just these, these empty buckets of need, but, Mm. but what are, what, how are we called to give ourselves in love and community and hospitality in the church? Um, I would love to do some more writing on godparenthood. Uh, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I have several godchildren, and mm. even though I don't have biological children of my own, yeah, I feel that I have a calling to parenthood in many ways. Yeah. You know, to it's helping raise calling. these children in the faith, and I'd love to do some more reflection on that. Um, oh, very interesting. And yeah. and maybe maybe even encouraging parishes to think about how can we how can we be more intentional about about kind of um, honoring godparenthood and, mm, and yeah. um, kind of stewarding it uh, encouraging yeah. it so those are those are some some thoughts i did i did publish uh, zondervan asked me to, to publish a second edition of washington waiting which i think came out in 2016 yes. and i added a longer chapter at the end where i kind of reflected on you know how, how can we as church communities 
become the kind of places that elevate and honor the single life. Yeah, th- those are those are some of the directions my thought has taken me since then. Yeah, thanks, Wes. Um, so tell our listeners what you studied and what you teach. Yeah. So I studied um, uh, New Testament, uh, New Testament theology in my doctorate. I went to Durham University um, and worked with a wonderful scholar named Francis Watson. Mm-hmm. Uh, N.T. Wright was the bishop at the time, and he would occasionally yep. be, be around. Um, yeah. And uh, so I wrote on uh, the letters of Paul and Trinitarian theology, kind of looking okay. at Paul as a Trinitarian thinker. So my, uh, I, I'm sitting here across the street from Western Theological Seminary mm-hmm. in Holland, Michigan, where I teach now. And I teach in the Bible department. Uh, I teach a range of classes, uh, New Testament survey. I just taught a course on the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to teach on Galatians uh, in the fall. So yeah, New Testament is kind of the wheelhouse for yeah. me. Thank you, Wes, for that, because I want to say to our audience now directly, in the years that I've known Wes, and I don't know how long it is now, but it's probably 10 years or something. Yeah. 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 What I've so appreciated about you, Wes, is the combination of your qualities of being, just the person that you are, I I so enjoy and admire and Mm. respect. But not everybody would know that you're also a careful thinker, that you're hmm. you're, a, you're, you're one of that. the church's trained theologians yeah. that we should be grateful for. Yeah. So I say that because I want to shift now to some global perspectives mm. that, as you know, mm. you know we're, we're all in the same church here, the same yep. worldwide yep. communion. And lots of our listeners will know, especially our pastors will know that, you know, the communion shaking And so this is a bit of an artificial dualism, and you can nuance it, of course. But Mm. just to say it briefly for the sake of a podcast, on the one Mm. hand, you have sections of the church that are really angst-ridden and wringing their hands about changes that are happening in the Church of England with the blessing of same-sex marriages. And then you would have another section of the global Anglican church that would be worried about recent news coming out of Uganda right? Uh, with what people would see as harsh, or I've even heard adjectives like draconian yeah. uh, sodomy yeah. laws that the church, yeah. it's not exactly sure how much the church is approving of right. every little detail of that law. But how do you, as somebody who's embodied this for decades, attention in your yeah. body, yeah, but also a careful you know, New Testament theologian, how would you encourage our listeners who don't live in this every day to redemptively live in the tension of this church and be yeah. redemptive voices? Yeah, thank you. It's it's a wonderful question. And I think, um, so I heard, I don't know if you'll know the name Bishop Dan Martins. He was the Bishop of Springfield okay. in the Episcopal Church, kind of a more uh, traditionalist uh, Bishop, he's one of the communion partners, and I heard him give a talk a few years ago where he talked about three conversions in his mm. life. He said there was the conversion to Christ, um, but then there was the conversion to the church. I, I knew immediately what he meant because I think I've had yeah. a similar conversion. And I, I had a wonderful personal relationship with Jesus from childhood, but I didn't really think too much about what that meant in terms of my fellowship or belonging with other Christians and. Yeah. It was only later that I began to realize, you know, Jesus actually prayed for us to look like one big family, for us to be mm. visibly united with each other. And we're not, you know, right. we, we, yeah. you know, I, mm. I remember uh, bringing a Roman Catholic friend to an Anglican service one time and he he stayed in his pew when it came time for communion because we can't yeah. have communion together. You know, we're divided. Right. right. And so I I think one of the so I grew up Baptist. Um I think I said that earlier, but yeah. one of the things that drew me into the Anglican fold was this sense of a worldwide family of churches that are that are publicly united to each other. And I think that's what's so yeah. painful about what's going on right now is those those bonds are really cracking in many yeah. ways and right. fraying. What I'm trying to embody myself is to be able to say what I believe, which is that, you know, I think what's happening in the Church of England is is not right. It's not, it's not good. I also think what's happening in Uganda with Christians supporting these, these uh, harsh measures, that's also not good. But what I can't do in either case is just write these people off and say, they're not part of the family. Yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the reason I care so much about it is because they are part of the family. Yeah. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's, it, it'd be easier if I could just get away from these people and say, well, they're not real Christians or they're not real Anglicans. Mm. And I just, I just find myself not able to do that. You know, I don't, I don't know the heart. I don't know 
I, I don't want to you know pronounce on anyone's eternal destiny, but I do think it's my obligation to treat anyone who shares baptism in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit to treat them as a, my family member. I may think they're very, very wrong, uh, dangerously wrong, but I can't just say, well, you're no, you're no kin of mine. You know, yeah. you're, you're, right. you're, you're, you know, I, I've often thought if I were to leave the Episcopal church, my life would be simpler and easier in some ways, but I wouldn't have necessarily solved any theological problem. Right. I mean, yeah. these people are still, they're still my family. They're still my baptized brothers and sisters. And, and, uh, you know, we, we, I don't think we can solve our problems simply by breaking the bonds of communion, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And as you know, Wes, that's the Protestant tradition, so to speak, right? Well, right. And, right. And how we've ended up with, I don't, I haven't seen the real number recently, but 40 some thousand exactly. dis- distinct exactly. Christian groups in the world yeah. or something like exactly. that. Exactly. So when I, when I saw the news out of Uganda, which, you know, only Cape, only came, it feels like a week or two after the news from I know, England. I know. I gathered our canon theologians in C4SO uh, to have a conversation about mm. what do we say? Who do we say it to? Yes. Um, what's the purpose? How, how could it be redemptive? Yes. And I, I don't know if you know Emily McGowan. I, I think yeah, you probably I do. might. Yeah, yeah. And Emily said something that I thought was really difference making. She said, uh, in a she she explained a little bit more what you just referenced to where i mean these are my words not exactly hers mm. but that we mustn't divide that we are bound to these people by baptism yes i thought that was fascinating that you yes. both bring up baptism and we don't have time to unpack yeah all the theological depth that's there but what Emily further said, and it's that it's that boundedness by baptism that means we must have an exchange with them. It's exactly. just not a divisive one. Exactly. That exactly. we try to speak out of love. And exactly. and I know if given the chance, you could take an hour and unpack your issues with the C of E. You could sure. take an hour and unpack your yep. issues with uh, not just picking on Uganda, but sodomy laws all over yep. the world. And obviously this isn't the place to do that. But what I love, what you're both saying, and actually now that I think about it, it sounds like Friedman's work, that, that, we're, that we're differentiating while staying connected. Yeah. And yeah. it's that baptism that connects yeah. us. Yeah. And then based on that, we can talk about our differences. That's right. Well, you know, I so I think I, I'd be interested to talk to Emily about this, but I yeah. think I kind of came to this understanding largely through reading ecumenical theology from the 20th uh-huh. century. So mm. there's a famous document called baptism, Eucharist and ministry that a bunch of different Christian churches uh, kind of signed up to, you know, it's fascinating to think about if you were, if you or I were to convert and become Roman Catholics, the Catholic church would not ask us to be rebaptized mm. because they view our baptism in the name of the father, son and spirit as a real baptism. Yeah. And that's why they don't call us, non-Christians, they say that we're separated brothers. We're in impaired communion with each other. Right. But there is a sense in which we are in communion. And, yeah. and that is so important, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel that way with, you know, my fellow Anglicans that I think are wrong on all kinds of stuff. I want, I want the freedom to keep having that conversation, to keep speaking what I think is true, while at the same time having it be like a fraternal correction rather than a, right. you're outside yes. the camp, you know, you're outside the fold. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you happen to know David Taylor, David O. Taylor from Florida. I, I've never met David, but I know his father because his father oh, used to that's come right. and teach, yes. teach at Trinity School for Ministry when I was yeah. there. Yeah. David just happened to send me, I think just yesterday, uh, an article that I had not seen this before, this work that's being done on what's called a side X and side Y. Now, most of our mm. listeners would be aware of the side A, side B right. conversation. So I don't think you need to talk much about that. But what's this okay. new work or this new language around side X or side Y? What's happening? And and of what's happening there, what would be important for Christian leaders? Yeah. So the, the side A and side B language kind of came as a reaction to the side X. I don't think it was called side X at the time. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of become newer language. But Side X would basically say, uh, you know, if if you're gay, God wants to take that away. God wants to heal you. And maybe through therapy, maybe through healing prayer, God God changes people's sexual orientations. Yeah. And side A came along and said, no, and we want to we want to see God blessing same sex unions. And side B said, no, 
we don't think God heals everyone who's gay and we want to, we want to support celibacy. Now side Y would be a, a view associated with the names of people like uh, Sam Alberry, who's a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and Sam's English, more, right? English. Sam's director. English. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think R- Rachel Gilson might also mm-hmm. fall in the, in the side mm-hmm. Y camp. She's also a good friend. And basically what they would say is, Wes, we agree with you that same-sex attraction is not something that God seems to just magically, you know, erase from Christians' lives. It's it's mm-hmm. still there. It's still a part of our Christian experience. But we don't want to take on the identity label of gay or lesbian. We don't want oh, right. to uh, adopt a kind of secular yes. framework for thinking about uh, these things. So, so they, gotcha. Rachel, I think, would say she's a Christian with same-sex attraction, Right. Rather than a gay Christian, and that that's that's kind of the distinguishing feature of side Y, I think, if that okay. makes sense. So yeah. side X would be the more classic kind of ex gay, Exodus mm-hmm. International paradigm. Right. Side Y would be, um, you know, where Sam Oliveri and people like that are. So let's just dig a little deeper because you know, Wes, that in Acton and C4SO a year or two ago, you know, this very issue, this side Y issue, yeah. be- became yeah. an issue, yeah. and maybe I was wrong. But I was assuming, especially in wider culture, that yeah. same-sex attracted and gay are synonyms. Yeah. And yeah. that the language of same-sex attraction is actually not known in the wider culture, that people right. would just kind of look at you like, right. what the heck are you talking about? Mm. Right. In your view, are there important theological issues here, or do you see it as roughly synonyms to name you know, the same uh, yeah. reality? That's a great question. I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think same-sex attraction is is broadly used outside of Christian spaces yeah. and maybe even outside of evangelical spaces. You know, right. it's kind of it's kind of insider yeah. Christian yeah. language. Mm-hmm. I have met people who find it helpful insofar as they would say, I don't I don't want to identify in any way with uh, sinful temptations or 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 patterns of desire. I I I, I want to be honest about my my same-sex feelings but I don't want to use the word gay. I don't want to kind of claim yeah. that, that cultural label. And yeah. I respect that. I respect that position. I will say for myself, when I was finally willing to say, you know what, I'm gay. It felt kind of to me like a St. Paul moment of God can take away this thorn if he wants to, but I'm, that's not going to be the main focus of my prayer and my energy. Mm. I'm going to be, I just want, I want to acknowledge this is my reality. This is my pattern of attraction. I don't want to get hung up on the language. I want to be able to communicate beyond the evangelical fold. I want to communicate in the language that mainstream culture is using. But I also want to acknowledge I'm celibate. You know, I'm not. I'm not out there waving the pride flag in, in the mm-hmm. way that um, right. uh, that others are. So, so I, you know, I don't think any of this language is perfect. I, I will also say, same-sex attraction. It was used a lot in the ex-gay movement, and so for yeah. a lot of evangelical Christians, it does have baggage that okay. that someone like like you, you know, might not be aware of because you haven't you haven't been in those spaces as much. But mm-hmm. there are some folks who are kind of triggered by it and say, oh, I, got you know, it. I, okay. I, I was I was put through, you know, deliverance ministry that really mm-hmm. kind of messed me right. up psychologically. And so I don't want to use, okay. I don't want to use helpful. the language of same sex yeah. attraction. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, because I know you, Wes, I am hundred percent sure what I'm about to say is true, but it would be maybe helpful for our listeners to hear you say it from a, mm-hmm. like an existential point of view, but I'm quite sure you would very clearly say my identity is in Christ. Absolutely. I happen to have a thorn that's, de- Absolutely. that's right. defined by X, Y, Z. Yeah. But, but you saying X, Y, Z, you don't mean to say that's my identity. Right. Right. A- absolutely. I-, I mean, we probably need to do more work on what, what is this concept of identity? What is this actually? Cause right. as I mean, a theological I, matter. Yeah. In and other I, words, I mean, not merely as a social or psychological exactly. matter. I mean, mm. social, yeah, social or psychological, but as a theological matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. I think we say, I mean, we use all kinds of identities all the time. Like I'm an American yeah. or right. I'm white right. or, mm-hmm. um, and, and we recognize, you know, these are significant and these are also problematic, but they're not at, at the core of who I am. The core of right. who I am is I'm a creature made by God and I've been redeemed by Christ and I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Like that, that's who I am fundamentally, which, which doesn't mean then that I can't also identify myself in other, in other ways, you know, 
So yeah, yeah I, th- I think we need I, get your canon theologians on this. Uh, on yeah, this challenge okay. Of, we'll get, we'll get you in on it too. We'll go for a retreat. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Wesley, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us, your testimony. Um, it is so, so valuable for those of us who are members of clergy who are desperately trying to cultivate like a culture of just love and care in our churches, like at a local church level. And then for those who do um, experience this reality of being gay, but also wanting to pursue discipleship toward Jesus, I think that your testimony is so powerful and, and we're very grateful for it. You are a gift to the church. You are a gift to us as we speak. And and we like to end things on kind of a hopeful note. So mm. we want to just ask, you know, at the intersection of the work that you do with human sexuality and the church, what inspires you and, and what makes you hopeful for the future? Yeah, wonderful question. What gives me hope? I, I think where I see churches celebrating friendship, celebrating Mm -hmm. hospitality, ways of being together and belonging that aren't just about the so-called nuclear family, but are are drawing widows and divorcees and never married people uh, into into rich networks of of fellowship and hospitality and ministry. That's what gives me hope. Um, And and Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was talking to a good friend of mine, Alan Jacobs, who you guys may know, and he said it could be that one of the things that gay Christians can offer to the church by sharing our testimony, we can perhaps open the door for churches to be more honest about other kinds of sexual longing and questions and brokenness and mm. need. Um, uh, it could be that our kind of carving out our place or, or giving voice to some of our struggles mm-hmm. and and longings that that may in fact have spillover effects uh, for others. So that's certainly what I pray for and what I hope for uh, in the church. I said before, but I want to say again, somehow just hearing you talk there, Wes, gave me a flashback. You might have to help me with my memory, but I think it was in the Anglican mission days before ACNA, although it might've been an early ACNA bishops meeting where you were doing the morning Bible readings and you were doing the Psalms. That's right. Because I remember thinking, what's this New Testament guy? He's brilliant on the Psalms, too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, yes. I spoke to the the College of Bishops, I think, in Florida at some point. Yeah, I just can't remember what year it was. Maybe Orlando. Probably 2013 or 14, because I was already teaching at Trinity, and I started there in 2012. That sounds about right, because I think of us knowing each other about 10 years. And I remember, Wes, in that moment— uh, being drawn to you then. I'm so mm. grateful for your life, so grateful for your career, that. the life of your mind. You've given yourself to scholarship, the battles you've battled, and how all that comes together to help the church. We're really grateful, and we're Thank grateful you, to, for you to help us today. Well, and I, I've admired you for years, and I pray God's blessing on your ministry. I have so many friends in C4SO. It's it's kind yeah. of ridiculous. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so Godspeed right. and God bless. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in to the C4SO podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to share this episode and subscribe and leave a review. It helps us to get the word out. Thanks.